Welcome to Mod Pod, Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm Hilary Palanza, your host. With us today is Jason Nias, founder and director of Molati, and performing artist and creative director, whose background with high school step teams and NCAA gymnastics launched his career in the arts. Growing up in a military household, Nias traveled the world and experienced a myriad of cultures at an early age, which heavily influenced his perspectives on storytelling and his ability to connect with audiences. As a performer, Nias has traveled the world extensively with Cirque du Soleil, Step Africa, Stomp, and the International Body Music Festival. He's created award-winning choreography, worked as a cultural ambassador with the U.S. Embassy in Southern and Eastern Africa, South America, and Central America. He served as an assistant choreographer, dancer, and stunt double for the film Stomp the Yard, Homecoming, and has performed in numerous regional theater productions and independent films throughout his career. He's honed his percussion and performance skills while working alongside some of the most talented artists this world has to offer, all of which strongly influence the work he does today as a teaching artist. Nias facilitates Malati's arts education program, reaching over 20,000 students per year. He's currently a teaching artist with Cirque du Soleil's Arts Nomads program and the Smith Center's Education Outreach program. As a resident artist with the Nevada Arts Council, he regularly conducts in-school residencies in stepping and body percussion. The multi-year artist-in-residence project, Roots, The Power of African-American and Black Dance in America, traces the creation and evolution of African-American step and hip-hop dance through the lens of tradition, expression, musical trends, sociopolitical forces, and migration. MOD's artist-in-residence offer their perspectives and experiences regarding step and hip-hop dance from West African rhythmic roots through transformations in the American South in the mid-late 1800s to current iterations. Exhibitions will regard these specific dance styles and how invention, slavery, cultural appropriation, and popular trends change their roles and forms through time. We could not imagine a more appropriate or timely national exhibition to uplift and celebrate the voices of African-American and Black dance artists. For too long, dance communities outside of the Eurocentric tradition have been overlooked and systematically disenfranchised. The borrowed steps of hip-hop, swing, Afro-Caribbean, tap, and many other dances are often appropriated, while their originators remain unrecognized and their communities siloed. Museum of Dance seeks to disrupt this dynamic by giving our artists a platform to share their stories in their own words, movement, and language. Jason, I've read your bio almost 100 times, and I'm still so in awe. (laughs) What an incredible career you've had thus far, and it seems really it's kind of just the beginning. It's a sincere pleasure to have you as a resident artist at the Museum of Dance and also today for our podcast program. Welcome. Hillary. Yo, that introduction is pretty dope. You said you're in awe. I'm kind of in awe. I was like, yo, that dude sounds kind of dope. I think I want to meet him. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. It's it's very nice to be on the podcast today. Thank you. You're so welcome. Uh, So, Jason, as I've learned more and more about your life, um, you spent some time traveling in your youth growing up. And I was curious, and the team's just really curious about uh, the specific place and time you found dance as a young person. And, And would you just mind painting that picture for us a little bit? Yeah, you know, well, when I was young, uh, both of my parents were military, but um, my mom actually got stationed in Germany. So the family kind of split and my mom and myself and my brother, we went to Germany and we lived out there for three years. Um, <clears throat> and the first time that I was ever in front of people, because I was the shy kid, like yeah. super duper shy. <laughs> I would hide behind my mom and dad's leg if somebody you know, were out in public. And my brother was so outgoing, but I just wasn't, you know. But um, I was excelling in school. And uh, at one point I became PE student of the month. And so then there was this thing where towards the end of the year, they round up all of the students of the month and we go on this um, a, a confidence course. And then also with part of that program, for some reason, we were selected to do D.A.R.E., 
drug abuse and resistance education. And, oh, I remember, Dare. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All included with that, you had Janet Jackson at the same time with Rhythm Nation. All right. So PE Students of the Month, we had to learn the Rhythm Nation routine and I think also the knowledge routine. And we had to perform it in front of all of the kids. And I think there were about 3,000 kids at that, at Ramstein Air Force Base. And we had to perform that. So that was my introduction to performing, ever being up on stage. You know, again, like I said, I was the shyest person in the world, but I was like a straight A student. So I was just doing what I was told. I did what I was told. <laughs> I did the routine, did it to the best of my ability. And I think that was my introduction to, oh, people clap when I do something good. Okay. <laughs> and the second time when I actually found stepping, I saw this video. Uh, it was actually live on NAACP Awards. And I saw the Divine Nine, five African-American fraternities, four African-American sororities. They did this unity step. And you talk about, I taped that, I recorded it, and I learned it. And just ran it back over and over and over. I stole everything that I could. And that was my introduction to stepping. And what it was for me, it was it was so cultural. Like I said, if I'm over in Germany, I'm always usually the one black kid in the room, you know, um, being a military kid. But we were just not in cities where there were lots of black people. You know, like we were always the other, you know, my, myself, my brother, you know, there'd be a few, you know, military families. But in Germany, you know, they're, they're still running around. Like the Germans would come up and touch my hair. They would feel my skin to see how I feel, if I'm real. And that was normal for me, you know? So when I saw the power of these black people, confident, strong, and they were coming together in this unity step and they had so much pride and, and power and they were doing this dance that made the music by itself. They never played any music. It was just powerful. It was drums without the drums. It was all this rhythm without anything else. It was just the people. Something about that in that moment, I just attached to and I yearned for, and I think my soul was needing that because I had never been around that. I had never known myself as that. So when I saw it, oh yes, I, <laughs> I recorded everything and I learned as much as I could from that uh, NAACP performance. From a, from a VHS tape, nonetheless, probably. VHS, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and broke the tape. I rewound it too much. And the um, and what a crazy way to kind of get out of your comfort zone so quickly. I mean, I can imagine that was probably a pretty scary but thrilling um, experience to kind of be in front of how many people did you say? Thousands? Hundreds? In yeah, with the PE program, it was uh, we had three thousand students in the oh, school. Wow. That's a big yeah. school. Right. So it's yeah. a, it kind of brought you in and also kind of forced you to sort of get outside of this sort of shy, mm -hmm. um, shy guys. So how interesting. And then, so as a, as a military family, you, you made your way through and then you ended up at University of New Mexico um, where you studied dance or you, you found the dance department and somehow, and you met the co-founder of your current dance company, Malati, Antoine Davis. Can you tell us a little bit about that period of your life, just um, being in university and how you continued your dance training and how that um, kind of transpired, that relationship with Antoine Davis transpired? Yeah, so Albuquerque, New Mexico, when I was in high school, I actually started a step team then, and I was at Albuquerque High. Antoine and Khalid, they were both at Highland High School. We were rivals. Ah. I didn't really know them <laughs> yet, but my step team had been on the scene and doing things around the city. And then I go to UNM because I'm one year older than them. I go to UNM and then I'm a freshman, you know, so we're young, whatever. But then I see the Highland High School team, the step team, start doing things around the city. I was like, yo, that's our step. We stole our step. Yo, yeah, you know, <laughs> and it became this thing. But I remember, I, I remember this so specific. In my mind, I was like, no, I'm grown. I'm an adult. I'm not going to be petty like that. Let the kids have their thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they were younger than you, Abby. Yeah. <laughs> they were so much younger. Just a year. They were so much younger than me. So let them have their thing. My time with high school stepping is over. So <laughs> I was creating this whole story in my mind. But <laughs> at UNM, uh, there at the time there were zero, like literally zero. African-American fraternities or sororities on campus. And it's a big school. It's about 30,000 30, people, you know, um, University of New Mexico. But we just weren't represented through fraternities and sororities. So you would not see any step shows there. And I had already been exposed to the Divine Nine. I had already started my step team at my church and at my high school. So I wanted a step team, you know. So in the next summer, so after my first year, in the, in the next summer, there was this Bridge to Success program. And Antoine was a part of that. So in the summer, we met. He came on the crew because uh, I think he was trying to walk on to the football team or red shirt. Um, and for some reason it didn't work out football wise, but his friend Kenny was already talking to us about being on the step team. So Kenny brought Antoine. Antoine came through and it's been like that ever since. He's never left. And that step team was, um, it was called the Rhythm Cartel. We hadn't created Molotti yet. Molotti was this whole other experimental thing, but we had this Rhythm Cartel. It was over 20 people. We had so much fun. You know, it's 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 kids in the summer, you know, like we're creating steps. We're being, we're just being creative, you know, and it's in New Mexico. And I think the landscape there is that we're doing an art form that wasn't necessarily ours. You know, it. Mm-hmm. if you were going to claim it, it was going to be, the black fraternities and sororities. None of us were in fraternities or sororities. We barely had black people in New Mexico. It was less than 2%. And it was the same amount at UNM, you know? So we're really being, we're taking this art form of using stomps and claps and and movement and dance and everything, but we're really kind of experimenting with it from the very offset. We're mimicking some things that we had seen. We're being creative by creating new steps, but we're also starting to tell our own story because we ha- we just have this accidentally unique perspective on it. We're not learning things from a master who's teaching us. We're just creating as we go. So that was the origin of Rhythm Cartel. And then from there, a few of us, literally a handful, I think six of us, we wanted to keep pushing it and see what else can we do with it? Can we integrate flamenco? Because there was a flamenco dancer on the crew. There was a tap dancer on the crew. I was a theater major. And so we started uh, working on telling different stories. We started putting comedy skits inside of it. And then we started, again, with no music, we started creating these little scenarios and scenes and skits and, you know, just powerful little pieces that we had an opportunity to perform at um, all over New Mexico. There was, <laughs> there was <laughs> this one, this place called the Three-Sided Hole, which was literally a dugout little <laughs> amphitheater in the side of a mountain in New Mexico desert. Of course, they had to have it at night. So we're in these dune buggies driving out there at night. Nobody can see anything. You hear a coyote. And then you you just come up to this place where there's campfires and bonfires. And somebody's out there butt naked. The host (laughs) is butt naked. And we're like, is this how it's going to end? I don't know what's about to happen. This cult is happening. I don't know what's going on. But they invited us and they're paying us. So we're going to come out here. We're going to do our step. I was going to ask you, you know, hopefully you just got paid for that experience because it's coming away. It's, it's, uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit shaky. What is this for? Well, like, at least I'm getting paid as an artist. <laughs> and we're not in our own cars. We're completely on their turf. Like, but hey, live to tell the story. So. Live to tell the story. Of course. Of course. Oh my goodness. Yes. Having grown up in New Mexico myself, I can, I can relate to those sort of almost surreal experiences. It's just a kind of an amazing, amazing thing. What a great story. So can you tell, because a lot of our audience who listen to ModPod um, actually probably don't have a whole lot of windows into the dance realm. Do you mind talking a little bit about this concept of sort of how stepping began in the Black American community and in contrast to sort of how fraternities and sororities exist at at university level? Well, when I was was with Step Africa um, in D.C., I used to live in D.C., I was with Step Africa for about five years, 
one of the projects that um, Brian Williams, he, he brought on uh, this rhythmic historian. His name is David Pleasant. He was living in New York. Um, so he came down and he did this residency with us um, to teach us and to help to create a piece for Step Africa. And um, so what he told us, what he taught us was, and how he framed it, let me say it that way. The way that he framed it was the event that happened in American history was, quote, they took the drums away. Mm. So we had this whole piece where we created that was all about, they took the drums away when they made it illegal during enslavement to play drums because it conjured up too much power, too much unity, too much togetherness. And there was, it was like this other form of communication that slave masters did not understand and could not control. Mm -hmm. So the event was they took the drums away and we talk about the word resiliency, you know, like <laughs> what are we going to do <laughs> if you take something from us, we're going to recreate it in a different way. So basically, when, when you take the drums away, what do you start doing to mimic the drums? You start stomping on the floor. You start playing spoons. You start clapping. You start slapping your lap. You start creating out of nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's a, to me, that's one of the most beautiful things. And it was the same thing that I was attracted to when I saw the Divine Nine performing on the NAACP Awards. There's nothing there except these human bodies. That's it. That's the story of th this American existence of us Africans here. They keep taking everything away and stripping us of all these things, of language, of culture, of our drums, our heart, you know, mm -hmm. our clothes, our babies, our families, everything. Yet we continue to recreate mm -hmm. and exist and not just exist. We continue to just grow and blossom in these creative ways. So fast forward stepping is one of the byproducts of that event they took the drums away mm -hmm. stepping buck dance tap dance you know all these all these percussive styles of dance mm -hmm. yeah they 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 had that <laughs> they're an offshoot of you know at least from the african american perspective some of the dances that have developed in this country were because of that original event that's so so profound to, I think, just learn about and to be connected to that history. Um, and it's heartening and disheartening in, in kind of both, both ways. But I think um, I remember for the first time learning that tap dance was rooted in, in, you know, African and black forms. And it's incredible. And we've been discussing this right together a lot with our artists in residency program and what we're, what we're doing with our, um, work together, but just this concept of like those forms being hidden and subverted and stolen and then reappropriated too, and kind of like taken to this level, um, especially tap dance at this level of like um, people, especially of the you know Caucasian white descent, sort of saying that that's theirs, and it's just I I I think it's just fascinating to to hear this story from you and learn about. Um, the roots um, of, of the, this forum. So thank you for sharing that. Well, one, one thing just for clarity, you know, like people are people all over the world. Anybody can clap under their legs. Anybody can hit their, you know, can, can tap dance if they really wanted to, but yeah. specifically in this region, in this, and, 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 and for this reason, you know, this style developed over here in this way. You know, like a lot of people think it's directly, it is a direct offshoot of the gumboots dance of South Africa. Well, the story of, of the South African gumboots is a little bit different. It developed because of a different reason. And why you're reaching down to these rubber boots is the rubber boots are on your feet because it's protecting you from water while you're working in the mines. Mm -hmm. Steppers don't use rubber boots. It's not the exact same dance, you know? percussive dance can look similar all over the world you know like uh, when we were especially when we were traveling with step africa we would get that in some of the talkbacks well where was the origin of this style of dance because i've seen this over here in europe and it's completely different but it looks like the same thing you know and so yeah it's not to negate anybody else's cultural history with how they perform the dance but specifically with stepping and where it draws from in this country is because of it it stems from that thing being 
the drums being taken away. So Africans in this country made it work some other way. And yeah, and so forms of tap, tap like the early um, buck dance, buck dance, where it's a lot more heels driving straight into the floor, you know, versus what we would call Broadway tap. It's like, well, it's all forms of tap African. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't go there. <laughs> I wouldn't say all of that. Is Irish step dancing African? No, I Ireland and Irish step dancers have their history with their form that they have cultivated, you know, but in this country and for these reasons and this style, here's how some of these styles in this country have developed. And that's what we call stepping and book dance and patting juba and hand bone, you know? Thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and so fascinating to learn about all the kind of different variations and how they evolved over time. Really neat. So when you founded Miladi with Antoine, who's, as I sh probably should mention on this podcast, is another one of our artists in residence who's interviewed in a separate um, Museum of Dance podcast. But what can you tell us a little bit about, um, you'd, you'd mentioned this before, but sort of the gap you were filling um, as a you know step dance company west of the Mississippi and how it um, worked to kind of found this, this dance company together? In the beginning, to, to even say the word founded a dance company, <laughs> that was so big and lofty to us. We were just experimenting and having fun. That's the straight up truth. You know, we were in college. Uh, it was very extracurricular, but it was just a passion. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we went to, you know, we, we never founded a company in New Mexico where we were until later, years later, you know, we found ourselves in Las Vegas later. And then we actually incorporated, you know, we got the business license and did all of that. But yeah, in the, in the origin of it, um, it's, we call it an experiment in body percussion. We started using the term body percussion versus stepping because we saw that that body percussion included some of the other things that we wanted to try and play around with, you know, like we said, uh, JC, Juan Carlos, he was on the, on the crew and he was a flamenco dancer. And so every now and then we were like, yo, what would this be like? What would this sound like if we did this? Well, if you do that and then I try, you know, and we would just experiment all the time. That was, that's really the essence of what it was and really is our core of how we still continue to create new pieces today that that's that's why we exist is to experiment with body percussion to push the boundaries and see what new stories that we can tell amazing and and i so appreciate the candidness of the uh yeah the unintention of being the formality behind it but it just is mm -hmm. a, that's a great way to start too to just play right as as artists i think long for that um that type of context so currently, as you're at, regarding formalities, as you're sort of this formal Miladi, can you tell us a little bit about the process of um, how you, well, of course, things have changed significantly for dance makers in the world now with the pandemic, but, um, you know, what what is the process of um, your dance making? How do you make productions together how does it how does it work with this sort of all of these different forms coming together is it different every project you have a sort of a formulaic way that you work or how, how does your how does your company work together so I, I would say currently <laughs> the process has been story driven first what is the thing that we're talking about what is the message that we're putting across um is the first first thing you know i think because you know many people in the world you know we're we're conditioned to movies let's just go with movies right most movies they have a soundtrack or a score that kind of leads you into telling you how to feel about this certain emotion this certain moment this certain scene right so that's been one of my latest um processes for creating a new piece is what is the story first and then what is the mood of the story and how do we support that as body percussionists to make music and intensity loudness or softness quiet whatever we need to tell the story because story is number one mm, nice and a great way for audiences to connect to dance works i think is the, the narrative piece. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not, not to say that abstraction isn't fantastic and needed, but the, but sometimes this, this 
mode can can help um, access points, I think, to to people watching or observing. Really cool. So um, so it's just it's really fun to think about all of these different variations of the way that you work and your work with Melati and your performing career. And also you have this deeply ingrained and sometimes kind of um, you know, you have a very multifaceted career with your training in drama and acting, and then also this piece of being an educator. And we were laughing a little bit right before we started recording about your uh, Zoom uh, sort of name coming up as Mr. Jason <laughs> in relation to your work as an educator. So um, you're you're highly sought after in many different ways, um, and. Uh, also, you know, just in addition with your work with dance education with kids. And um, I'm just curious, what do you think currently is important about kids having access to dance or at the work that you do? What, what, do, you, what do you think is important about that as you work with them and see, see how they um, react to learning body percussion? Coming into the arts educational world, you know, coming from off stage and doing 10 shows a week and moving into the classroom, I jumped in at a time where I'm seeing teachers stressed out. Kids are stressed out because of all this testing, standardized testing, testing, testing. I'm like, what are you testing? <laughs> like, what are we doing? I didn't have, I didn't have um, an opinion I, I was kind of neutral. I thought I was neutral coming into the classroom. I'm not, you know, coming in saying, yeah, our entire educational system needs to be reformed. I just wasn't there yet. <laughs> but coming into it, I'm just seeing all this testing. And I'm like, what is going on? Especially when you start cutting out PE, cutting out dance, cutting out art, cutting out the painting, you know, all of these things that are creative expressions of a developing mind that mm -hmm. just seemed that... I don't want to say I took it for granted, but I was like, I'm glad I was able to take it for granted growing up. You know, I'm so glad that it was there, you know, so to, to go into school systems and see that it was lacking and it wasn't there. I was like, whoa, that blew my mind. I did, I did not know that was a thing. I didn't know that's how these kids were being developed these days. So, yeah, to have a company like a Cirque du Soleil or a Cleveland Playhouse or, you know, any any of the programs that I've been working with to go into the schools and supplement or create space for the kids to be creative is beyond necessary. It's just, that's how minds develop. Like you're not even fully, your brain isn't even fully developed until it's around what, 25 years old, 26, like certain parts of your brain. Like, so you need that. And, and self-expression is a huge, huge, huge part of that. We cannot just be training robots and be training memorized, you know, let me recite and repeat exactly what I read. Like, what, what is life? What are we doing? What's up? Like, <laughs> like, oh my goodness, who, who does that? Like, who wants to do that? Where you know? are we going with this? Yeah. Why yeah. all the testing? I, yeah, I hear you. Like, it was kind of, <laughs> it just, it really did blow my mind on a basic level. I'm like, for real? It's like cooking without the main ingredients. Like, what are we doing? Ew, <laughs> nobody wants to do that. So anyway, that, that's where my, my attitude has grown towards. Um, as I've been working with more and more kids over the past, um, I've done workshops throughout my entire career. I've always been in contact with kids. And, but usually it's, it's a one day or a one event type of thing, or maybe even a residency. But now working as a, a whole semester at a time has been different for me. I've learned so much about how an eight-year-old mind develops versus a 10-year-old mind. It's like, okay, I'm in second or third grade, or I'm in, uh, I'm in fourth and fifth. Oh, okay. Well, let me see how you take this thing and put it into your body and move and express yourself at this age because there are certain things that you weren't ready to do at this other age. So again, I have been learning so much and that wasn't always my attitude. When I first came in, Again, I'm coming from off stage. I'm coming from a place of excellence and expectation of hard training, hard work, excellence every single day. You do it at top, top notch. You know, you're you're best in the world. Let's do these world-class shows. So when I go in and teach at that time, 
it was about creating excellent step teams, excellent <laughs> steppers. Excellent. <laughs> As I'm sitting there and talking to a nine-year-old, <laughs> it's like, they can barely walk straight. They're still tripping over their brand new shoes because their feet are still growing. They're all over the place. <laughs> sure, sure. And the middle schoolers, the hormones are everywhere. And I, I was like, oh, <laughs> Oh my goodness. I did not know hormones were a thing like that until I was reintroduced to teaching middle schoolers. I was like, yo, okay, let me transform what I'm doing and my expectations and my approach to the whole thing to where now you fast forward a few years in, man, I love the kindergarten. I used to never want to babysit. I don't want to be in there babysitting and clap and chew and kinky kinky. I don't want to do that. I just didn't want to do that. Now, some of my kindergartners are some of my favorite classes. Uh, sure. Yeah, because the expectations have been changed, right? And they say that as a parent, it's like, you got to change your expectations. You got to change your expectations. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, in um, for what you were saying before about just the stress. I mean, I don't know as a child if I even knew what that, that word meant. I think um, a child of the 80s, right, growing up in New Mexico, playing outside with worms and bugs. and. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember kind of the bubble tests and they were, you know, our teachers were sort of neither here nor there with them. But I agree that there's just this need for um, not only arts being kind of this add on, I think, but a really important part of how we relate to ourselves and others. And, um, and as we've seen with just sort of the cultural outcomes of where we are right now in this country, I think too, and not to get too political, but like, you know, if we're creating empathetic minds and we're, we're participating in arts, we are able to sort of see each other, I think. And um, I, gosh, I would have loved to have had you as my kindergarten step (laughs) teacher. (laughs) I, you know, I probably still can't do it to save my life, but it would be, it would be so fun. So you service children in the Las Vegas area mostly at the moment. And are you able to do some classes online now with the pandemic sort of making it harder to get into the schools? Actually, actually, yes, that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, Four days a week, I'm actually teaching with Cleveland Playhouse, Cleveland, Ohio. So all of the kids that I'm seeing are based in in Ohio. And I tell them because I was, you know, it just started this in January. So I'm the new teacher. So they're still kind of meeting me. We're on week two, but they're still kind of meeting me. And I just kind of remind them, it's like, what time is it over there? It's 830. Oh, well, it's 530 over here because it's it's snowing out there. It's all light. They're all awake. And they're still like, I'm just tired. I'm this. I said, well, it's 530 out here. The sun is not even up yet. (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm able to teach across the country right now. It's been interesting. I just had to shift my hours of where I wake up, you know, just a few hours, but I like it. I I do like it. That's, I mean, I guess that's a a potentially positive outcome of um, some of the, you know, the silver linings, if we can try to see those of the pandemic of, you know, being able to to offer more to students and other artists across uh, sort of time boundaries. So yes, that that's one of the yep across the world across the world. When people tune into Instagram and you just tell them when you're going live and they're coming in from everywhere that we've traveled all over the world, you know, like it's it's amazing. It really is. Like you even just to see one tune in from Italy, one of them tune in from Ghana, one of them tune in from Bali. You're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Technology. I love this. I do. I love this. We are connected in that way. So connected. Yeah. And I think it's going to continue to be that kind of, uh, whether we like our boundaries or not, our world is headed that direction, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Interconnected world. So, um, So, you know, we've been hopping around a little bit, but I think obviously, as we know, as dance artists, all of these things connect to the other. So with the work we're doing uh, together with the Museum of Dance and your residency here uh, with this, you know, this design we've thought up and we're imagining to to enact these pop-ups in different cities. um, I'm curious what, what it is about the style and history of stepping that you personally really hope to relay to the people that come through our exhibitions or pop-up 
exhibitions, um, especially those who might have very little entry points into this style of dance. Mm, I think one of the main things is, is basically based off of a misconception that I've experienced throughout my whole career as a stepper, as a body percussionist, that one, people think it's easy, mm-hmm. and two, people think it's a, a street dance in a way that they don't respect the big, massive cultural history behind it. They just don't even understand what they're what they're watching. So I'm I'm looking forward to being able to dissect and explain here's the why. Here's the what. Here's what's going on musically. If you would like to talk in musical terms, let's talk in bars. Let's talk in structure. Let's talk in, you know, seven, eight times signature or, you know, like, let's talk that if that's what's going to connect with you, because all of that's happening Mm -hmm. in this style of dance. Mm -hmm. We're creating the music and we're doing the movement and the dance at the same time. These are two different art forms that are inside of this one thing that we're calling body percussion. You know, that's one. They don't even understand what they're looking at. And then two, the cultural history behind it. You know, when I say street dance, it's not my, I'm not coming from a a place of disrespect at all, but I think many people are confused about when they see something, anything on the street, they kind of disregard it Mm -hmm. because it's not in a big symphony hall, because Mm -hmm. it's not on a stage. It's literally just a venue. That's all it is. You know, I think, was it Yo-Yo Ma? Um, he did that experiment before where he was playing um, uh, in Carnegie Hall and then he would do the same thing in the in the train station yeah. and just see the different responses. Literally just a change of venue. So I'm looking forward to explaining the technicality of what's going on inside of the percussion on the body and also the cultural history behind it and how rich it is and the reasons why like we said when they took the drums away this was an inventive way to move this art form forward and look at where it developed and then look how rich it is it's it's actually amazing it's actually amazing and then you put those two things together and you just marvel at what the human body can do mm-hmm. what the human body has access to even if you don't have drums or a flute or a piccolo or whatever it is, look at what's happening right now. This is dope. And now next, I want to give you a chance to try it. Let's start with clap number one. Let's go, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, it empowers them after they learn, oh, this is more dynamic than I thought. Now I can actually create something myself with a better understanding of what it is, you know? So I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And the, and um, I think that's kind of what I've learned what the skilled professional dance artist does best is makes the thing that the style of dance that they're practicing and performing look so easy. I mean, we know that in, I think we can attest to that in Eurocentric forms of ballet and modern, but I think what, what, you know, this work about what bringing to the surface is the, the, polyrhythms, this the complication of coordination and timing and specificity and then also meaning and oh gosh, there's so much there that one has to train a body percussionist has to train into and practice and keep up and I think makes it look kind of so easy in a way, but it's not. I mean if you try, like you're saying, try one step, ooh. Mm-hmm. Not easy. There's just a lot going on. It's like uh, the pitch. Well, since I talk to kids all the time, it's like the octopus with all these different arms and tentacles. <laughs> but your body and your brain has to manage which part is doing what, when, where, why. How does it all fit together musically on your body? But you have it. Well, at least we have these four extensions: the hands, feet, body. You know, like so. It's it it is complicated. But man, if we had one more arm, if we had one more <laughs> leg, what kind of music could we create? You know. <laughs> it's experimental, <laughs> but it is fun. Absolutely. So talking about this piece of, you know, um, of the cultural roots and origin, um, I thought it'd be really cool to share with our listeners the specific stories of your travels back to Africa and your experience with some of the tribal elders in the place you returned to to know more about the origins of the style of dance, the style of dance you practice. 
So can you tell us a little bit about this return trip and how it inspired um, some of your current artistic work? Ooh, you're trying to get my heart beating real fast right now. Yeah, <laughs> I can never tell the story without actually just feeling what we felt when we went. So in 2018, um, Molati, we went to Ghana and it was for the International Body Music Festival. The festival, it changes cities and, and countries every single year. I don't think it's ever done the same city twice, except uh, except San Fran, Oakland area. Mm-hmm. That's where it's, um, the founder created the festival. So it's the 10th one. It's in Ghana. It's the continent of Africa. So we already, we Black Americans, we feel like we're going home. <laughs> Even though I had never been to Ghana, I'd been to 12 other African countries, but I'd never been to Ghana. So this was my first time as well. So we get there. And um, we're having, you know, first day, there's all this welcome, there's dancing, there's everything, there's the food, there's all this stuff, you know. Um, and then we're we're assigned to teach our classes and to do things for the festival. And it's all fun because we're meeting, re-meeting our friends from all over the world who are in this small body percussion, geeked out little society, you know, because <laughs> we all meet every year at the, at the festival. <laughs> and then one of our excursions, we go to this other town. Um, in Joje, Ghana. And, you know, so our bus gets there, all the kids, they had this, all the kids welcome us. We go into the town. They have uh, this ceremony for all of us. Um, So meaning mixed races, meaning diverse, everybody from the festival, not just, we're not just all black Americans coming. So there was actually only eight from, of, of African descent and seven were from America. One was a black Canadian. And so we were the only eight black people at this whole thing, at this whole festival. Americans, I should say. We sit down for the the ceremony and you had the tribal leader, you had the other elders in the, in the village and they welcome all of us. And so one at a time, we each go up and we receive a, bla- a bracelet on our left wrist and we get to meet and greet the elders and the tribal leaders. And then we come sit down and then they pull the eight of us who are of African descent to another part of the village to this, I'll just call it a temple or this other place. Um, And they said, you are, we consider you the lost children of Africa. Oh, wow. (laughs) That alone, we were already like, you know, we had to catch our breath and just like, we consider you the lost children of Africa. We apologize for our hand in slavery. Oof. Oh my goodness. I, my, I think my heart just dropped and I got chills all at once <laughs> because you've told me this story before. And I, um, how are you feeling? I mean, how do you, obviously retelling it probably brings up some things, but how so unexpected probably for you very unexpected my goodness like the the reactions in my body were like ev- all of the blood started going i started like shaking like a little bit pendu she's right next to me water comes out of her face she starts crying and crying and crying and 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 I'm literally, I'm looking around, we're like, okay, where is Barack and Michelle right now? Because obviously they're not just talking to little low lust. They're talking to, this is massive. This is huge. You know, I'm, I'm looking for Oprah. I'm looking for who are they actually talking to, but they're talking to us. And so it took me a while to really reflect on that, that right there. They are talking to us. And what that did over time, as I let that sit and and we created our show, we created Pati, and even after that, it set even more and more and more. It was just the fact that we, let me just say that I, Jason Nias, am important. I took that in, we took that in to say that our stories are important. My story is important get to work as an artist and write your story, create your story, perform your story, get it out, put it out into the world. After it's that, it's no longer yours. You got to let the world do what it's going to do with it. It might turn into whatever it's going to be, you know, Um, but your job is tell that story and don't put yourself second or third or last 
mm-hmm. put it out there and put it out there first. This is your job. This is why you're born. Mm-hmm. You're the artist. And, and a big part of that is that acknowledgement. Those tribal leaders in Ghana saying they apologize to us, us eight African-Americans out there for this festival in that moment. It was just that powerful. And it's set with it's still with me, obviously, you know, but it grows and that meaning grows over time even more. And it's all over our creation of Pati. Pati is all about <laughs> who am I? What is my name? You know, it's it's about uh, our central characters based on Pendu. Pendu is a as a Molati member. Um she just took so many good uh, journals. She just wrote in the journal every single night of the festival of our time in Ghana, which was 12 days long. She took the best notes. So months later, you know, we're back in Vegas and we know that we were going to create something. So I was like, I had to pry it out of her. <laughs> I was like, let me see what you wrote. Well, no, no, no. Let me, let me summarize and let me do that. Cause she wanted it like picture perfect and packaged all together. I said, no, let me see the raw stuff. So it, it took some convincing and we worked back and forth to really go into what's on that page. Who is she, which is very vulnerable. Uh, she trusted me. She really did trust me and Shayla, Shayla Love. She was a co-writer on this whole project to take her words, to take her feeling, to take, to take her life and form it into something that's going to be shown all over the world. You know, this story that we're calling Pati. And so the core character is a black American woman who one is mispronouncing her name. She's calling herself Patty. She's introducing herself as Patty. She got it going on. She got the job. She got success. She got all this stuff. But she knows that there's this deep thing that is not sitting right. It's not fulfilled. It's not satisfied. And that metaphorically is tapping back into, okay, we Black Americans, we we just, we've been stripped of so much that we don't even know what exactly might be missing because we're so disconnected from it. And that's where our story starts. And then we go in the play, we go all the way in this trip to Ghana and she rediscovers the missing pieces of herself. All these electrodes and neurons that she didn't even know were supposed to be there. She rediscovers who she is and she she remembers. She puts them back together through actively going back and, and discovering her roots. So... It's it's a powerful story. It's definitely based on us going to Ghana and that the tribal leaders on that day, if that day hadn't happened, you know, this 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 would not exist at all. But that day happened and and we did our job as artists to create something that tells our story collectively and specifically with Pendu as well. So what a what a profoundly important story to tell, not only because it's your own, but because I would assume that across the board, many cultures, specifically, of course, the Black American culture, but many cultures in the United States might feel that same way, this sense of sort of loss of identity in a sense, and and kind of returning back and and hearing that unexpected apology. Oh, I mean, I have so many questions just about that, but um, I feel like maybe we'll need to do a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Did you, did you respond in that moment? I mean, in terms of, um, were you able to say much back or did you feel like you were able to just sort of accept that apology in that moment? There was no, no, we, (laughs) no, is the answer. (laughs) It's a a strong no. No, because we, it was overwhelming what Mm -hmm. they gave us and what we were receiving. There was no response in that moment. Like later in that day, you know, we're back at the camp where we're sleeping and everything. And we start to talk about it, but it was just shell shock. It was just like, whoa, it was so much to take in that. No, there was no direct response. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. But but the the work of Pati, which um, th- we're so excited to help, you know, p- um, put on more stages in across the U.S. is it just um, such an important work and um, a, a work of trust too, in terms of artist to artist and um, your ability to kind of entrust each other's in- independent experiences and then put that together all together on this on the stage. So cool. Yes, I'm excited. I, yeah. 
I would say I can't wait, but I can because <laughs> we're <laughs> we're going back into rehearsals. We're we're kind of perfecting some things, and we're we're making it it what it wants to be fully. You know, the first round of um, we've done some shows here in Vegas. Um, there were some limits, you know, physically with the theater and how we told the story. But this time we're going back. Um, I'm getting with Shayla Love again, and we're uh, the deleted scenes that we had. To, we're we're reworking it, and we're we're making it tighter. We're making it better. And we're, ex oh my goodness. Yeah. This is, this is my biggest goal. This is exactly what I want. <laughs> it's, and, it's a dream. Yeah. A, a dream and having all this time to sort of dream about it. Right. It's almost like we've all been in our own little holes that you're mentioning earlier from New Mexico. It's time to just, just come out and, and start working again. And I so excited to see, to see the kind of refinement process. Mm. So wonderful. Um, Jason, unfortunately, our our time is wrapping up. Um, but I, I have been, as of course, as a podcast producer, I have been listening to quite a few podcasts myself. And one, I don't know if you've heard of Brene Brown, but she's this kind of amazing yeah. life coach person who does wonderful interviews. And a couple of my favorites recently are one with, of course, President Obama and then um, recently President Biden. Um, and she she does this really cool thing at the end where she offers some rapid fire questions. So in that spirit, and I hope Brene Brown's okay with me taking this, <laughs> taking this on, not stealing, but just uh, using this sort of technique. I think it's a nice way to get to know the people just very quickly at the end. Um, so are you ready for a few rapid fire questions? Let's go. Okay. If you could change instantly one thing about the world right now, it would be? Tell the truth. Dance artists are? <laughs> dope <laughs> if I had a million dollars for my next work I would Hati would be a touring stage show it would definitely be a film or some type of documentary and it would also exist as a children's book <gasps> amazing oh my gosh a children's book too without dance the world would be ugh <laughs> I might be most known for <laughs> The Texas boy who could recite Shakespeare upside down in a handstand while clapping his hands and landing in a big old split or something like that. <laughs> I am so excited to see that. I'll hold you to that. Jason, seriously, a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So excited to continue the good work together. And thanks again so much for your, your time today. We so, so appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.